Please bow your heads one more time as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the preaching of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we trust that you are watching over your word to perform it. So make good on all of your promises now for the effectiveness of your word to accomplish all of your good purposes. Let it take root in each of our hearts and bear fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. For Jesus' glory among us, we pray. Amen. Spanish Inquisition. Protestants hunting down heretics. Puritan witch hunts. These Arguable controversies over Christians interrogating people seemingly without mercy are often used as historical reasons that unbelievers give for not trusting in Jesus. Christians have behaved badly, therefore Christ is not worthy of my faith or obedience. Or perhaps... I would be cool with Christ, but historical examples of Christian aggression towards others is so disillusioning, I just can't consider the claims of Christ without being disillusioned by those who have claimed his name. I love Christ, but I don't like Christians. That's understandable, at least in part. But we should remember that before Christians ever behave badly towards others, we all behave badly towards Christ himself. We're going to see that this morning in John 8, 1 through 11. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John 8, 1 through 11, where we are the ones who carried out the inquisition against Jesus. We're the ones testing him. But as you find John 8 in your Bible, you might say, wait a minute, Pump the brakes. That's in brackets in my Bible. Should that even be there? Well, some scholars think John 7:53 to 8:11 is not original to John. You might have a note in the footnote of your Bible that the earliest Greek manuscripts don't include it, at least not here. The manuscripts that do include it are at the earliest in the 5th century A.D., and they put it in different places, either different places in the book of John or somewhere in Luke. This passage uses some different words that occur nowhere else in John. Some think it interrupts the narrative flow between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And early church fathers themselves skip this paragraph in their commentaries on the Bible. On the positive side of the ledger, however, it does serve as an illustration of chapter 724. Judge with a right judgment. It's not that it doesn't have anything to do with the context. And this paragraph is still right here in the main text of the 26th, 27th, and 28th scholarly editions of the Greek New Testament, even if it is in brackets there too. So some really smart people who know Greek way better than I do include it where it is in the Greek New Testament. We should also note that this passage neither adds any new doctrine to Scripture, nor does it contradict any doctrine taught elsewhere in Scripture. So we're not reading a passage like we might read in other heretical or apocryphal Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or something like that, that says things like, well, women shouldn't go to heaven. Like, you're not reading that in John 8, 1 through 11. This is pretty standard stuff about Jesus. You read chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 in John, and you're like, why is that in brackets? Because it sounds pretty familiar to what you already know about Jesus. Sounds true. So it doesn't add any new doctrine to Scripture, nor does it contradict any doctrine taught elsewhere in Scripture. So there's no point of Christian doctrine writing on the decision to include it or exclude it. 
After reviewing all of the doubts, Herman Ritterboss said it best, still we have here such a precious and in the judgment of many historically authentic tradition from the life of Jesus that not only does its place in the fourth gospel have to be maintained, but also exposition of it rightly remains in most commentaries on John. In other words, this is a really good passage. And almost every commentary on John comments on this passage. I agree with that judgment. And that is why I am preaching it in a series of Christian scriptures. We're going to spa the text. Story, point, application. We're going to read it first. So follow along with me in your Bible as I read out loud for us. John 7.53 through chapter 8, verse 11. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, right in the middle, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. So it's early in the morning. Jesus is already teaching in the temple with a big crowd around him. People are getting out of bed early to listen to Jesus. I mean, there's an application point for you right there. Is listening to Jesus worth getting up early for you? Jesus sits to teach, as was the custom for teachers and rabbis in that day. I will exercise self-restraint in not applying that comment to our present-day arrangement for public worship. But the scribes and Pharisees use this occasion to march this confirmed adulteress right into the middle of where Jesus is teaching in a public place, in the temple. So this is a public confrontation. There's a lot of people around to overhear this confrontation. This is like a spontaneous public debate. They're putting Jesus on the spot in his own classroom, as it were. Verse 4 She was caught in the act. So there is no doubt this woman really is guilty. She has, in fact, committed adultery. They have got her dead to rights and may have brought witnesses to prove it. It's open and shut to them. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, verses 4 to 5. Now, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What, therefore, do you say? You see how they put it? This woman, such women. Here again, you have this judgmental pronoun to put a self-righteous separation from themselves and another sinner. This woman, such women. They think she is despicable. But their focus quickly moves from her to Jesus. Moses commanded this. What do you command? 
hot shot in front of everybody. Do you agree with Moses about what we should do to this woman, about what he commanded that we should do to such women? Or do you disagree with Moses? The law is found in Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Similar law is found in Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 to 24. If the woman is a betrothed virgin, so it's clear what they're trying to do to Jesus. They're trying to put him in a catch-22 between a rock and a hard place in public. Though who is conspicuously absent from the attempted prosecution? The man with whom she sinned is nowhere to be found. They've not brought him. They only brought her. And that makes you wonder, is the adultery issue really their issue? Or is Jesus their issue? If they were really serious about this woman, they'd have brought the man. You heard Deuteronomy 22 earlier in the service. They both deserve to die. Adultery, then, is only the presenting issue. Their real issue is with Jesus, which John points out in verse 6. They said this to test him. See, whenever you have a question about a narrative like this, pay attention to what the narrator says to help you interpret it. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against who? Not against her, against him. They're more interested in prosecuting Jesus than in prosecuting Jane Doe. They're using her to get to him. That's why they didn't bring the man. They're out for Jesus' blood, not Jane's. She's just their prop. She's just a legal tool. She's just a visual aid. But Jesus is their target. She was caught in the act. That's true. Now she's caught in the crossfire. She's not the one on trial in the court of public opinion. Jesus is the defendant here. Will he enforce the death penalty for an adulteress or will he not? He's the defendant. She's exhibit A. Now, on the one hand, if Jesus does enforce the death penalty for her, then the crowd listening to him will think him merciless. After all, these capital punishments were not normally executed in the first century anyway. According to John 18, 31, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, and that's about Jesus. The Romans reserved capital punishments for themselves, not for subjugated peoples like Israel. So the Pharisees themselves probably would not have put this woman to death since the Roman overlords reserved that right for themselves. That's why the Jews had to rely on Pilate to crucify Jesus. On the other hand, if Jesus does not enforce capital punishment from the law of Moses, then the crowds around him who are still present will wonder whether Jesus is even a good moral Jew at all, much less the Messiah, since he would be flouting Jewish civil law. One way or another, they want at least one side of public opinion to be outraged at Jesus enough to demand his blood. That's why they're doing it in public. Let's stir the pot. Let's poison the well. Now their hunch is probably that he'll take the merciful route Because that's kind of how he is, right? And if so, he would become the anti-Moses candidate, which would be the death of him to conservative Jews. They already think he's a Sabbath breaker from the first table of the law and worship, but that charge didn't seem to stick. So now they change their legal strategy to prosecute him for violating the second table on loving your neighbor. 
How serious is is this guy about upholding the laws on the books regarding adultery? Is he soft on crime? We got him now. What Jesus does next is one of the most puzzling things he does in all of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, it's almost bizarre to us. Like, what, what are you doing? What does this even mean? He stoops down to write something in the dirt? <laughs> I mean, I bet there's a lot of quiet times that have just stopped right there. I don't know what to do with that. I got to go to work. What is he writing? That's the, that's the question that's tempting to ask, isn't it? What did he write? Am I supposed to know what he write, wrote? I don't think so. John doesn't tell us what he wrote. And the leaders never respond to it. You notice that? They just keep on asking him for an answer the first time he does it in verse 7. As they continued to ask him. So whatever he's writing is not answering what they're asking because they're continuing to ask. So what Jesus is writing is not the answer. Otherwise, they could have read it and stopped asking. I mean, so, so now think about this. Just think about it today. Think about if somebody did the, the modern equivalent of this today to you. What would you think if you brought to me what you thought was a very serious moral accusation against another member of this church? And I started doing this. What would you think? I think you would think that I was not taking you very seriously. J.C. Ryle is right. Jesus means nothing at all (laughs) by writing in the dirt. (laughs) Because he's not writing to answer them. He's doodling to ignore them. (laughs) He's not even taking this seriously. And he wants them to know it. He's not paying attention. He is literally not paying attention to their accusation against this woman. John Calvin says this. this is, Ryle got it from Calvin. Christ intended, by doing nothing, to show how unworthy they were of being heard. <laughs> That's funny. I think he's right. I think for the first time in my life, I actually understand what Jesus was doing here. I think that's the best explanation of Jesus writing in the dirt. It stings. That's kind of an ouch moment, right? Like, (laughs) But he's right. And from one of the most enigmatic responses of Jesus in verse 6, he says one of his most misapplied quotes in verse 7, let him who is without sin cast the first Stone. If there's another more frequently misquoted, misapplied passage than judge not lest you be judged, this is it. Jesus knows the Jews are out to get him, not Jane, they're not out to get Jane Doe. So his response is not about Jane Doe, it's about them. John told us the Jews were out to get Jesus. They want to charge against him. And so Jesus makes his reply about them. The woman is caught in the crossfire. But what exactly is Jesus meaning here? Well, he's alluding to Deuteronomy 17.7, where The ones to cast the first stones were actually the witnesses to the crime, but he replaces witnesses with him who is without sin. Now, again, what's he mean by that? Well, it's highly doubtful that he's saying, none of you are morally sinless, therefore you can't judge anyone. I mean, if that's what he meant, then all moral judgments between people 
would be impossible. And Jesus himself would have been wrong to say in chapter 7, verse 24, judge with a righteous judgment. That would be impossible. Judging with a righteous judgment would be impossible for people who are not totally, perfectly sinless. That can't be what he means here then. Otherwise, we should close all the courts, defund the police, dismiss the legislature, and never practice church discipline. And never call someone else wrong for anything that they do. All moral discernment would be impossible. All ethical conclusions would be groundless because no one is sinless. So that's not Jesus' point. When he had just said in 724, judge with a righteous judgment. Do judge. So then, is he saying specifically, you guys are just as sexually immoral as this woman? Maybe. But probably not, because that would run into the same objection as the sinlessness idea. No one who lusted could ever confront anyone for adultery. You'd be in the same boat. Again, that's an impossible standard too. Though Romans 2.1 is still true, and in the Bible, in that which you judge another, you judge yourself, for you who judge do the same things. That's true. That's probably not Jesus' point here, though. He's probably saying more specifically that they are not without sin in the way that they're bringing the charge at hand. You're not even being honest in how you're bringing this woman to me or why. You guys are sinning against me and against this woman right now by using her as a pawn in hopes of checkmating me into your corrupt conviction of me. You're not being just in your legal proceedings here. You're not sinless in the matter at hand. This is a kangaroo court. That makes the most sense of John's comment. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus delivers that iconic piece of wisdom so often misquoted and misapplied, then goes back to doodling in the dirt as if to diffuse the whole thing. And they all walk away one by one, starting with the oldest, who knew better than to treat either Jesus or Jane like that, and they would have known better than anybody, you shouldn't conduct legal proceedings like that. So the reason they walk away is not what they saw him write, but what they heard him say. When they heard it, not when they saw it, when they heard it. And interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't even stand back up to acknowledge their departure. I mean, that would be, again, like me not even looking up from my phone as I text or play Candy Crush while you were trying to convict someone of some heinous immorality. And I gave you a one-liner, and I'm just still doing this as you walk away. He only stands up to encourage the woman to acknowledge their departure and what it means for her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? They accused her, but they could not sentence her. And she acknowledges it. No one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus himself really is without sin. And yet he refuses to cast the first stone. Even though he is infinitely qualified to do so. But that's not the closing line, is it? The scene does not end, neither do I condemn you. The closing line is, go, and from now on, sin no more. Here again, the Bible keeps talking when the natural mind would like it to stop talking a few words earlier. 
See, Jesus does not disagree with her guilty verdict. She was caught in the act, and he knows it. She had no excuse, and Jesus makes none for her. The Pharisees were not wrong to disapprove of this woman for her adultery. The Pharisees were not wrong to disapprove of this woman for her adultery. Jesus disapproved of her no less than he disapproved of them for bringing her for those ulterior motives against him. She's just as guilty as they are. Go and sin no more assumes that Jesus thinks she had sinned. I don't tell you to stop doing something that you're not already doing. You know that famous question, when did you stop beating your wife? I mean, if you answer that question, you're, you're implying that you used to beat your wife. It's not good. Go and sin no more. Assumes that he, she had sinned, and he knew it. Stop it. So it's not that all moral disapproval is bad. That is not at all the point of this paragraph. It's that moral disapproval should be married to a desire to see mercy reform the sinner. This doesn't mean that Jesus is soft on sin or that he's a moral relativist or that he doesn't think anyone should make moral evaluations of anybody else. Jesus does still tell us to judge in the same very, the very same chapter before, but to do it with a righteous judgment. Don't be disingenuous or self-serving about how you judge other people. Don't do it to make yourself look good. Don't do it to be vindictive. Don't do it to be manipulative. So God still condemns sin. That is true. What only Jesus knew at the time is what we just heard earlier in the service. God would do what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in Jesus' physical flesh on the cross, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, go and sin no more. And that is why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus took God's righteous condemnation of us in His flesh, on the cross, in our place, for our sins. He took the death sentence our adultery deserved. He took it. So that God could be both just righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because the penalty had been paid. So the point of our text this morning, John 8, 1 through 11, is we misjudge Jesus and we misuse others because we misjudge ourselves. We misjudge Jesus, and we misuse others because we misjudge ourselves. So again, this text is not ultimately about the woman's relationship to the leaders or to the law, for that matter. It's about the leader's relationship to Jesus and their relationship to the law. They bring her to Jesus, not so that they can condemn her, but but to see whether Jesus will condemn her or not. And that whether he condemns her or not, they can condemn him. She's not the point. She's the pawn. Jesus is the point for them. They misjudge Jesus as an imposter. And they exploit the woman for their own advantage against Jesus. All because they want to prove themselves right. When they could not be more wrong. They're not wrong about the woman. They're wrong about Jesus and about how they're using the woman. And most of all, they're wrong about themselves. They're wrong about how right they think they are.
They have annexed to themselves a moral authority that they don't have in order to condemn Jesus, and they are willing to exploit the woman to get their man. All because they think too much of themselves. We misjudge Jesus and we misuse others because we misjudge ourselves. We think we know. We think we're better than we are. We think we know better than other people. We think we know better than Jesus. Applications. Humanity's judgment of Jesus is unrighteous. Humanity's judgment of Jesus is unrighteous. They said this, verse 6, because they were testing him in order that they might obtain some charge against him. The supposed moral experts pose as objective, innocent, morally transcendent prosecutors. They're above it all in their own minds. They're above the fray, looking down in judgment on both the woman and Jesus. And this is how the modern mind has treated Jesus still today. The modern scientific naturalist, the modern moral relativist, assumes the 21st century self is objective and innocent, a detached, disinterested, third-party observer of reality. In his own mind, he embodies the mature flowering of humanity's long historical evolution. Now, finally, without bias or prejudice, or ties to previous outdated worldviews. Just impartially weighing the facts about Jesus. And from that lofty perch, the modern mind tests Jesus, trying to incriminate him somehow, trying and expecting to catch him in some inconsistency like a modern Pharisee. That's how we read the Bible, looking for something that's wrong. In fact, the modern mind assumes it's already caught Jesus on the horns of some dilemma, and it thinks Jesus had been found wanting, so it executes him all over again in the court of public opinion. The unbelieving mind is still testing Jesus so that it might have some charge to bring against him. But humanity is wrong to condemn Jesus still. That is why God raised him from the dead. That is what his resurrection means. We were wrong to condemn him. That is why his tomb is still empty. You cannot incriminate Jesus because God has already vindicated him by raising him from the dead. We should also note that moral indignation towards other sinners cannot confirm your innocence. Moral indignation towards other sinners cannot confirm your innocence. These men were indignant towards this adulteress. At least they made a show of moral indignation against her. And they try to bait Jesus into that same indignation. What they're doing here in the temple is the equivalent of modern cancel culture. They're ready to cancel both the woman for adultery and Jesus for really whatever charge will stick against him. Because he makes them look bad. He is running circles around them on the meaning and application of the law. He did it about the Sabbath in chapter 5, and now he's doing it about adultery and prosecution. It's not that they're wrong about the adulteress. They're right about her. But in Jesus' judgment, they're wrong about themselves. They're not as right as they think, no matter how indignant they are at her or Jesus. So there is objective morality. But part of judging with right judgment, coming to right moral conclusions about other sinners around us, 
is that we're honest in how we come to those conclusions and why we come to them. The Pharisees had ulterior motives in condemning this woman. She was just bait to get the bigger fish, Jesus. Why? Because they were not honest with themselves about who they were in their own sins. They didn't think they needed a Savior like Jesus claimed to be. So we might excavate the tweet or dig up a Facebook post or discover a text thread, but the real moral outrage is not always what we find in other people. The real outrage is often the reason that we're looking for something on someone else. Why are you looking? What are you trying to prove? What's it to you? What is in our hearts that makes us want to go after them like that? That we can and should disapprove of the sexual immorality of our culture, it's wrong. We can and should approve of dishonesty and legal proceedings. That's wrong. Jesus agrees that those things are sinful. But Jesus also knows how we ourselves like to deflect attention away from our own sins by crying down the sins of the culture. So if we want unbelievers to turn from their sin and from their self-righteousness, us first. On the flip side, moral indifference, moral indifference toward other sinners does not cancel your guilt either. It actually aggravates it. The wrong application of he who is without sin cast the first stone is that no one can judge anybody else because everybody's guilty for everything. Therefore, no one can disapprove of anyone for anything. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, let's keep sinning. I'll just leave you alone. That's not at all what Jesus means. But that's what the global monoculture expects Jesus to mean today. And if he doesn't mean that, we'll cancel him. What we want to believe is that if you are not perfectly sinless, then you have no moral authority with which to judge others, and especially not me. Therefore, many people today find their own righteousness in remaining morally indifferent towards the sins of others. Well, who am I to judge? I can't say anything to them about that because... And we think, well... As long as I don't judge, no one will judge me. Well, that's kind of convenient. Because I kind of don't want to judge other people because that makes me unpopular with them. And I kind of don't want other people judging me because that's kind of inconvenient for me. That's a little too convenient of a worldview. Live and let live. I never judge anyone for anything. Therefore, God cannot judge me for anything. But that viewpoint is neither livable nor biblical. I mean, I don't care how much of an unbeliever you are. Hopefully, you still judge the pedophile and the rapist. Where are you going to draw the line of, I don't judge? You certainly judge the self-righteous church who trolls the funerals of homosexuals while they cover up their own sexual scandals in their churches. You judge that. The moral indifference is impossible to live out consistently. You can't do it. There's always going to be special pleading in there somewhere. But more importantly, Jesus is not morally indifferent to this woman's sin. He does not tell her to go and sin all the more or go and sin some more. He tells her, go and sin no more. They exploited her. Yes, that's true. She was an oppressed woman in that scenario. That's true. They used her. They exploited her. They used her like a legal pawn. 
But that did not move Jesus to excuse her sin or act like she was not guilty at all. She was guilty. She should stop doing things that make her guilty. Don't live the kind of life you've been living. That was wrong. Change your mind about your sexual sins. Change your habits, woman. Retrain your conscience to be more sensitive about that sin. Do a 180, Jesus tells her. Don't be morally indifferent to your own sin, because I'm not, Jesus says. Jesus does not excuse sin, even in the people who are exploited by the powerful. He is totally impartial in that way. And he is totally biblical in that. Proverbs 17, 15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You cannot justify the wicked any more than you can condemn the righteous without being an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17, 15. Leviticus 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And Isaiah said, Woe to those, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own Sight. Well, there's a lot of that going around. And that applies to the adulteress, not just the Pharisees. Moral indifference to the sins of others is not loving. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Well, then what should I do if I don't hate him in my heart? Should I just shut up when I see him sin? Live and let live? No. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. The opposite of hating your brother in your heart is you shall reason frankly with your brother. Well, when do you need to reason frankly with your brother? When he sins. Lest you incur sin because of him. So it's not that we should all just mind our own moral business. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not live and let live. It's the offer of forgiveness of our sins through a faith in Jesus that repents, changes our mind, turns from sin to righteousness. Love reasons frankly with its neighbor about his or her sins, just like Jesus is doing with this woman. Go and sin no more. You can't get much more frank than that. Love is not indifferent about the sins of others. Love cares to warn them about the consequences of their sins and the impurity that those sins contract for our neighbor's hearts. Forgiveness does not create false excuses. It cancels true guilt. Forgiveness doesn't create false excuses. It cancels true guilt. Isn't that how... Many, many people want to treat sin today. They just want to make excuses and therefore find forgiveness and absolution and cleansing by the excuse that they've made up for either themselves or someone else. Oh, well, I mean, I can kind of understand why they did that because of this and that and the other and X, Y, and Z. And so it must not have been, man, you've got to kind of recognize the, consider the source, recognize the situation. They were under the gun they're so disadvantaged. They, they didn't have this out of the other benefit. And so they, they had to. That's not how Jesus sees it. Even with this woman who's clearly being exploited by these men. Jesus doesn't make excuses for the woman. Doesn't act as if she did not sin. She, he does not deny her guilt. He cancels her guilt. 
He remits payment for her guilt. Go and sin no more assumes that she did not in fact sin and she had no excuse for doing so. Sin has to be recognized before it is remitted. Jesus doesn't say, well, this woman had an extraordinary, extraordinarily strong libido. And God made her that way. And you don't know what it's like to be her, so somehow it wasn't her fault. Therefore, she's forgivable, and you ought to get off her case. That verse is not in the Bible. That verse really isn't in the Bible. Jesus doesn't dispute that she was caught in the act, nor does he dispute what the law of Moses says of those who are caught in such acts. He doesn't even dispute the punishment. Any heterosexual sex outside marriage is sin. All homosexual practice is sin. Elective transgenderism is sin. Even our lust contracts guilt and impurity. It's all a violation of the seventh commandment. Adultery and fornication even break the eighth commandment by stealing what's not yours to have. Lust breaks the ninth commitment by coveting what's not yours, the tenth commandment. We're all guilty, whether we're liberals or libertarians. So what are we to do? Well, only Jesus can make our accusers drop all charges against us. Why is this so? How can he do this? By what authority? Well, how will justice be vindicated if this woman is not punished to the full extent of the law? Well, because if she believes, then Jesus will take this woman's penalty in her place. Instead of her being stoned, Jesus will be crucified. He will suffer her capital punishment. This is why we sing hymns that have verses like this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. You want to minimize sin? You want to minimize what this woman did? Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. Look who died. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed Son of Man, the Son of God. That is why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Him? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's why you should believe in him. But sin forgiven should be sin forsaken. Sin forgiven should be sin forsaken. Does no one condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus says this same kind of thing to the paralytic. He healed by the pool of Siloam. Sin no more. It's exactly the same phrase. So Jesus is not soft on sin. He is compassionate to sinners. Forgiveness is not a license to sin. Don't do that again. Change your mind. Change your mind about your sin. Change your character, your priorities, your loves, your lifestyle. Change. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus meets you as you are. That is true. He meets her right where she was as she was. But he doesn't leave her that way, does he? He doesn't let her stay in her sin. He doesn't let her continue to identify with her favorite sins. Stop being an adulteress. Stop doing that. He meets you in your sin, not to stay there with you in your sin, but to get you out of it. He identifies with you in your sinful plight. That is true, but only to get you to identify with him and his power over sin and his righteousness to save you from your sin. All sexual sin is both condemnable and and forgivable. There is mercy... In Christ, for any kind of sexual sinner, 
who takes Jesus' side against their sins, who comes to Jesus knowing they need forgiveness, cleansing, and power to change. I want to say something, one last application. It's Father's Day, and this passage is about adultery. It at least includes an adulteress. So we should be clear. Married sex between one man and one woman is the most important social justice issue of our times. Married sex between one man and one woman is the most important social justice issue of our times. The leaders are trying to put Jesus in an impossible public situation, both socially and politically, because they think he's leading the public astray in claiming to be the Messiah. The presenting issue is what to do with this adulteress. But she doesn't get away without moral exhortation either. Jesus knows that sexual fidelity between spouses is important, not only for the spouses, but for the strength of the social fabric. You're ruining everything. Bruce Weidick wrote about this in a 2016 article for Christianity Today. I quote a few sentences because he's reflecting on the social justice of married sex in a way few others have bothered to do. He says... And I quote this in a book by Mark Regnerus called The Future of Christian Marriage. But Bruce Weidick says this, A sexual relationship between a man and a woman involves, among other things, an exchange of sex for commitment. Commitment on behalf of the man to the welfare of the woman and any resulting children. Seen in this light, The commitment of a man to a woman with whom he has a sexual relationship is not prudery. It is social justice. From a biological standpoint, sex devoid of genuine male-female commitment is a form of stealing. And a widespread social acceptance of sex without commitment represents an injustice against women and their deepest biological interests. The tragic irony is that the sexual liberation espoused by some secular feminists could not play more perfectly into the short-term selfish interests of men. Limiting sex to the confines of a lifetime commitment between a man and a woman is God's intention because, at least on a biological level, so more could be said about that, but that's true because, at least at a biological level, marriage as an institution promotes a fair exchange between the sometimes competing interests of men, women, and children, end quote. Many other matters of social justice can be traced right back here. Because when sex is cheap, when it's easily available at a frequent clip, men always win. But women and children lose big time, big time. Women in the pornography industry lose because it leads to objectification and human trafficking. Black women, the very people most elites posture to help most, are the ones who lose most of all. Why are black women so disadvantaged? You know the answer, don't you? Because the black men they sleep with refuse to marry them. That is social injustice. Why do the black men they sleep with refuse to marry them? In large part because they know the government will pick up the tab by subsidizing single mothers only if they live in homes without an able-bodied male adult. They make more out of wedlock than in wedlock. 
You cannot incentivize social injustice and rationally expect social justice to be the outcome. And the ones who pay with their lives are the children in the womb who will never even see the light of day because of abortion and the children who grow up fatherless and get shot by the gangbanger they mistook to be a father figure. The best way to be a social justice warrior is to quit watching porn. Marry the girl you're having sex with. Get a job to provide for her and the children you have together, and don't leave her until one of you dies. That is social justice. If you are single, you can be a social justice warrior by practicing sexual abstinence until you get married so you don't steal a girl's sex without providing for her in the aftermath. If you are childless or have room in your home for more children, then consider adopting a child from a sinful situation like God has adopted you when you were a child of wrath. And if you are tired of false social justice masquerading as true social justice, then do something about it. We misjudge Jesus and we misuse others because we misjudge ourselves. Friend, do you see now how the Pharisees and scribes thought wrongly about their own moral standing? They viewed themselves as basically good, clearly better than most people. That's why they didn't think they needed the kind of Savior that Jesus came to be. They were offended that he had come from heaven to take on human flesh only to die the kind of death that an adulteress deserved. And the same is true today, which is why many people test Jesus instead of trusting him. We are tempted to find our righteousness in either our moral indignation or our moral indifference to the sins of others when Jesus alone has a perfect righteousness to share with us and to count for ours. And that way, we can respond to the sins of others not with indignation or indifference that has something to prove, but with the compassion of Jesus. We are tempted to find forgiveness by creating false excuses when we really need to seek Jesus for the cancellation of our true guilt and the sacrifice of his blood. We are tempted to think of our sins as forgiven when we have no intention of forsaking them. Christ has compassion for those whose sins condemn them. He alone can make the great accuser of the brethren drop all charges against us. And to all those whose sins have been forgiven, whose condemnation has been commuted to Christ, Jesus says today still, as he did to the adulteress, go and sin no more. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess we do not know everything. We do not even know all of our own sin. We don't even know or acknowledge why we want to condemn the sins of others so much. So forgive us for whatever remains of our own self-righteousness. Help us to trust in Jesus' righteousness credited to our account so that we have nothing left to prove to anybody, whether by indifference or indignation, because our sins have not been excused away. Their guilt has been canceled once for all under the blood of Jesus Christ, who died in our place and for our sins. So, Father, help us to love sinners around us the way Jesus loved this woman, not in ways that condone, but in ways that help other sinners find the cancellation of their guilt under the blood of Jesus Christ, as we have. 
Make this church a place where people, where sinners can find that among us and with us. And may you make more sinners trophies of your grace. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen.